We are in chapter 27, and we're looking at uh, the confessions treatment of the sacraments. So we addressed the first paragraph last week in this chapter, and now we're going to take a look at the next couple, I think. Maybe we'll get, get all the way through, I don't know, we'll see. We go as fast as we need to and as slow as we need to. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the beautiful day, and we're grateful too for this uh, work uh, that we have been given by men who sought to summarize scripture, to uh, nourish the church, and um, glorify you. We pray that you'll help us as we reflect upon it, knowing that it's not scripture per se, but it's an attempt to summarize scripture and uh, help us to understand in such a way so as to, to grow in grace and knowledge and depth of insight. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so this, uh, this particular paragraph is kind of the heart of things. There is, in every sacrament, a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified once it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. This is where uh, many Christians part ways with each other, is concerning this very thing. How are we to understand the relationship between the sign and what it signifies? So, uh, we have different theories that have been developed, the theologies of sort of sacramental theologies. And one of those is one that perhaps you're familiar with, transubstantiation. Anyone here familiar with the term transubstantiation? Those of you who have a Catholic background, they probably have heard it uh, used. Now, transubstantiation is very clearly uh, a Aristotelian way of understanding the sacrament. So let me explain. So you have what you have on the surface uh, which is the accident, and then what you have is beneath the surface is the substance or the essence. And in Roman Catholic teaching, uh, you, what you have is a transubstantiation of the substance, the essence, or what's beneath the surface, even though the accident, what's on the surface, doesn't change. You get what I'm getting at? So what you have is literally the body and blood of Christ essentially or substantially present in, the, in the, the host. Now you understand why the term host is used. Uh, and consequently, you're, you're dealing with um, a pretty literal way of thinking about this relationship between what the sign is and what it signifies. Now, I'm happy to reflect on that a little bit. Um, the fact that it was Aristotle, sort of an Aristotelian approach to understanding things tells you something. What it tells you is that uh, this is a later development. Aristotle was, was something that uh, people in the first, say, thousand years of the Western world uh, were not familiar with, or they knew who he was, but the, the works of Aristotle had not been recovered. That came later. So this is an interesting thing. So there you have some people who are saying, this is like a new thing. This is like a new development. This is a new way of, of thinking about it. And they're right. But uh, what it's intending to, to sort of address is a very 
you know, a central question is just what is the relationship between this, the sacrament, the sign, and what it signifies? Now, let me take you to another extreme. The Zwinglian view is the product of developments in the 14th century known as nominalism. Now, this is, again, kind of a new development. <laughs> so nominalism uh, is a, it was a, a, an approach to understanding the relationship between words and what they signify, or signs and what they signify. Uh, universals would be uh, another way to talk about it. So um, the realist position, which is position of the church fathers, by the way, <laughs> uh, the early church fathers, is the understanding that there is a real connection between signs and what they signify. Hence, realism, there's a real connection. Um, and you, you know how that works isn't something that lends itself to close scrutiny. It's not like something that we can kind of prove scientifically, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so nominalism just means names, names alone. So the nominalists uh, didn't believe that words actually tapped into universals. They were just kind of culturally conditioned arbitrary signs that were all agreed upon by a particular group of people. Now, we live in a nominalist age, very clearly. Can you see some evidence for that in our current discussions with regard to names? <laughs> right, you know, they don't actually refer to anything really except conventions, social conventions. So the only reason why, you know, uh, him and her, you know, refer to what they do is because we live in a in society which has said, well, this is how you're supposed to use these words. In other words, it stops there. It doesn't have any, any further sort of justification. Whereas the older view is, is that, no, there is a real connection to something, something universal, maleness or femaleness, right? Now, um, we have something here in uh, the opening of John's Gospel that's fascinating because uh, in the opening of John's Gospel, there is a uh, very explicit uh, set of statements about the sign and the signified. Are you familiar with what I'm getting at? In the beginning was the word. So let me take you there so, you, so I can say, uh, not making this stuff up. <laughs> these, are, these are considerations, in other words, that go all the way back to the New Testament. These are things that uh, the apostles were actually addressing. In the beginning was the word, okay, the sign. And the word was with God, the signified. And the word was God. There was a union between the sign and the signified. They're distinct, but they're not. Two persons, one essence, one substance. This is a very um, classic way of talking. And the term that we translate into the English word, word, is lagos. By the way, it has a long history before John used it. It's got a long history in Greek thought, and it addresses the very thing I'm talking about. So lagos can be translated either word or reason. Logic, logicon is a, is a form or 
a, a variation uh, on Lagos. Uh, so, uh, you know, our ability to kind of think reasonably is uh, due to the fact that, the, that there is something out there that's real that has uh, ordered the world in, the, in a way that we could say is reasonable and consequently we can apprehend it because we possess reason and we can describe it because the word means both, word and reason. Now, the association of this with Christ is the fundamental kind of uh, explosive thing. So that was already understood. The relationship between reason and word was already understood. The relationship between the sign and the thing signified was already understood. The thing that is the re revelation here is Christ is the Lagos. That's the new thing. That's the revelation, that it's not just an impersonal thing, force. It's actually a person, the second person of the Trinity. So anyway, now I'm in really deep waters. <laughs> but, you know, this is what this particular chapter of the Confession is getting at, the spiritual relation between the sign and the signified. Okay? Now, the... Nominalist view is there's no real connection. No real connection. It's just in your head. You know, we just, it's a memorial meal. We're just remembering what happened based on some description of the past. That's right. And so there's no real spiritual connection. This is where we as the Reformed uh, disagree with our Baptist brothers because our Baptist brothers and sisters have a nominalist understanding of this, a Zwinglian understanding of this. Sorry to name names, <laughs> but this is just the way it is. I didn't make this stuff up. Yep. Explain what you mean by nominalist. I just did. <laughs> so a nominalist is the name. You came late. That's what you get for coming late. No, I was from the same people. Oh, you're helping people out. They were dying. I was there. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm having a little fun. But anomalous, the name nominal means in name alone. So oftentimes when people use the term in, Christ, in our circles, uh, we're talking about people who are not true Christians, but Christians in name alone. In other words, you know, what, what, you know, you're just a nominal Christian, which means that you know, you, maybe you were born into a household that was Episcopalian. <laughs> I'm having some fun. I was born into an Episcopalian household, so I'm having fun. But anyway, uh, but you get the idea that, you know, we just call ourselves Christian because that's, you know, we, we're, we're a Christian family, a Christian nation, but we don't have any genuine Christian faith. It's just a name. It's a name alone. But the term in uh, the history of Western thoughts is uh, something specific to a particular way of thinking that developed in the 14th century. Uh, John Duns Scotus, William of Ockham, Ockham's Razor. Anyone here ever heard of Occam's razor? Okay, what is it cutting away? It's cutting away the real or the universals so that all you have are the names. And the names, again, are just conventions, arbitrary, just what we agreed upon. Everything, so like, like when you say, I saw a leaf today, this is a classic illustration. What comes to mind is leafness. I know it's goofy, it sounds weird, leafness. But according to the nominalists, that's a generalization. 
and doesn't get at the particular leaf. So the leaves are all just kind of like individual little things that they really should all have their own names. I mean, even every atom, even every electron <laughs> should have its own name. <laughs> you know, it gets to the point where it gets kind of silly, right? But in terms of human society, we have to generalize because we can't have names for everything. But again, it's just a generalization. And who has the power to decide what the things that we're talking about should be called? And this is where the postmodern, it's just all a bunch of power politics when it comes to language comes in. But anyway, this is a working out of a set of ideas that took a long time to get where we are today. Yeah, pretty. Uh, if the anomalous position was true, how does, and I don't remember where the passage is, how is it true that um, those who take the body and blood of Christ can actually get sick if they don't take it properly? If yeah. there's no connection between the, the same thing signified. And yeah, well, that's a great point. I don't know since I'm not a nominalist and haven't really tried to work it out. <laughs> I'm a realist, just so you know. <laughs> yep, Tom. What are, what are the well, the implications are that you devalue the sacraments, if we're talking about the sacraments in particular. Well, you know, it's not as essential as, as some other people think it is. So like in our church, you know, our particular church, we, we receive the Lord's Supper every Sunday because we believe there's, there's a real spiritual thing that is going on there and that there's a grace that we enjoy as believers uh, that is communicated to us through the communion, right? So, uh, because we have a so the, the the reform position is the is a realist position. In other words, we believe that there's a real there's a real connection. Yep. Does nominalism um, under what's the word I'm looking for? Does nominalism degrade virtue? Ultimately, like so. So you just brought up uh, the reform of the Baptist. So nominalism. What I'm seeing the fruit of in that realm is that they have communion once a month, and it really actually wouldn't bother most of them in there if they had it once a year. Yeah, well, there have been churches that have done that uh, as infrequently as that. So could nominalism, <coughs> in, in theory, just the general aspect of it, embracing that philosophy, uh, just disrupt? virtue, which is the classical ideas rather yeah. than... Well, I, I think that to be fair to our, our Baptist friends and so forth, they would say that that's communicated through the preaching, you know, and that uh, this is also a way that, you know, so it's a very active sort of understanding of God's work through preaching, and, and we can affirm that. Uh, but uh, spoken words uh, are basically... Uh, the primary emphasis, and it's by the power of God in the moment that these things have an effect. And all those things are things we can affirm, but it's the devaluing of uh, the sacraments and more largely just language itself. It's, so there are certain implications that follow, uh, and I don't want to get into all those, but, but, I, but I, I think the thing I'm trying to just kind of focus in on here is when it says uh, spiritual union, there's something in our confession that distinguishes us from both the Catholic understanding and the nom nominalist sort of Zwinglian understanding. Yep, Abe. 
um, we put more spiritual emphasis than Baptist into the, the, the sacraments, and we don't do transubstantiation, but um, far, but still far less than the Lutherans do. Yeah, that's transubstantiation. That's another term. <laughs> so with, as opposed to trans. So in other words, so they're closer to us. Uh, so I mean, this is where theologians make the big bucks. I mean, this is finding these things in such a way so as to distinguish them, you know, very subtly from each other. But if we were to look at, say, the, like a, if we were to, and this is not entirely appropriate, if we were to put it on a continuum, the most literal way of thinking about it is the Roman Catholic way. And the most sort of, I don't know, paraphrased version <laughs> would be, you know, the Baptist way. And then we're kind of in the middle. Because what we, what we say is there's a real spiritual union, but to enjoy the benefits of the sacrament, faith has to be present in the receiving. So there is a subjective element. But it's not so subjective that it's just happening in my head. It's not so objective that if you know, we dispose of the bread and the wine after service uh, in a way that's not, you know, um, prescribed by the church, we're not sinning. So in a typical Catholic church, you know, it has to, the host has to return to the earth uh, directly. So there is literally in a Roman Catholic church a chute that takes it down to the soil. I was involved in building a Roman Catholic church, so I saw it. Yeah. So since we're speaking of Lutherans, um, I remember having a conversation with some Lutheran friends some years ago, and they mentioned, and we were talking about communion and the difference yeah. between consubstantiation and the reformed, traditional reform view, and they just, uh, I don't know as much about it myself, but they just kind of mentioned the reason they went from reformed to Lutheran was partially because of that, and mentioned that really, the, in, in their opinion, the Calvinist understanding was relatively new and something that Luther quote-unquote made up. So I'm just curious, or uh, sorry, that Calvin made up. I'm just curious what your response to that would be. Yeah, well, it depends on what, of course, the Lutherans are going to dis, sort of distinguish themselves. So the understanding is that in a real way, we are in the presence of God and we are in heavenly places. They would make fun of that with like big ladders from churches where we're all climbing up spiritually to be in heavenly place. If you go back and you look at all of the, the woodcuts, you know, if you, if you think that like uh, memes are new, <laughs> there were memes back in the day. Uh, there were woodcuts, wood and some of them were pretty rough, pretty salty, pretty off-color, <laughs> that kind of stuff, particularly the ones made by the Lutherans of the Catholics. Anyway, uh, but they would make them for the reform too, just so you know, they played fair, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, so when, you know, you see in, in Ephesians, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's the approach that the reform took. Uh, we are in the presence of God in heavenly places. Uh, the critique I think that, you know, a reform person could make of the, of the, of the Lutheran critique is that you guys are being, again, too literal. We're not talking about spatial. We're talking about a spiritual kind of reality. So it's not as though, you know, we got in a rocket ship and just went further and further out. We'd eventually arrive at heaven. You know, that's not the Reformed understanding. 
I think too that we need to be also gracious in our treatment of each other in this matter. Um, so I'm not looking to start a fight with anybody. Yeah. About that, in with and under is, is Lutheran, transubstantiation is the body becomes, the bread becomes, and it's about the elements. Right. So what happens to the elements? And so the reform critique of Lutheran would be, well, the elements still remain the same, and the in with and under kind of sounds like transubstantiation. Well, there's this withness. So the con would be with, trans would be transform. There's a very sort of definite rejection of the Aristotelian novelties in Luther. Luther did what? He burned the Summa. Yeah, but Luther, <laughs> if we even the songs that we sing with Luther, he sound very Calvinistic. Oh yeah, well, well, there's there's a lot. So take it further back. So uh, the Augustinian position is the is the shared uh, position of both the Reformed and the Lutheran. So that's that's so if we're looking for a church father. It's Augustine. That's our guy, and. Um, the debates concerning Thomism, which would be the appropriation of Aristotle in Christian theology, obviously Thomas Aquinas, um, sometimes I think are, are a bit hyperbolic in the sense that um, there's a big debate about the relationship between Aristotle and Plato, but that's a whole other conversation. But anyway, uh, but, the, but, the, but the understanding that uh, Thomas had was that he was working with, not contradicting in his own thinking what had been stated by uh, Augustine. So it's not like we're rejecting everything. But it is true that, um, that Luther was an Augustinian monk. That's not a mistake. That's not an oversight. What happened within Catholicism is there was a... Um, battle, kind of theological battle between these two wings, and uh, the Augustinian wing uh, was eclipsed by the Thomist wing, and the, um, the implications was is that there were a bunch of people who had a more kind of Augustinian outlook who were out of favor, and many of them became Protestants. Or die. <laughs> right. So this is kind of the sort of the inside baseball of church history, and I know it's maybe a little bit disconcerting, but it's just the way it worked. Um, it wasn't the whole thing. You know, there were certain things that I think Luther did recover that even had been lost uh, sight of, uh, you know, in sort of the Augustinian wing of the church. But that's what happened. And you can... If you're really interested in it, there's lots of books. <laughs> I'm just giving you a quick summary, maybe too, too, too uh, kind of uh, crude, but anyway. But the main thing is, is that what, what, we, what we are intending to promote here is there's, there's something really going on in the sacraments. It's not just in your head. And it's not just in the thing. In other words, in other words it's, it's in reality itself. Um, and that would be a critique of the transubstantiation view, is that the change is you know, kind of happening kind of in this object. 
the bread and the wine. Whereas the other view, this, this view, and the uh, Lutheran view, is there's a spiritual connection. It's not as though we're trying to analyze the, the, the object itself and break it down into two parts, which is what you have with the transubstantiationist view. There's the essence beneath the surface, and then there's the accident, or what, you, what it appears to be. And this essence has actually fundamentally changed. Now, if you, if you believe that, obviously you're, you're going to be very careful about how you handle that, those elements, right? Which is exactly what you see in Roman Catholicism. You're very careful about how those are handled, what's done with it, that kind of thing. Um, you know, in the Zwinglian view, you know, you might say, well, let's just use Coke and saltines, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's just become so loose, so, and I've actually seen groups do stuff like that. You know, where it just becomes, well, what's the difference? There's no significance, really. And, but so what, we, what we're saying is that there is a, there is a real connection. Yeah. So we've been talking about the Lord's Supper, but is the same thing true with baptism? So yeah. in the Catholic, um, in the Catholic faith, they attribute to baptism more than Certainly we will. Well, there's holy water. So something has happened again. And it's not appropriate for you to use that water ever for anything else. You know, that's and also in terms of what it accomplishes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's this kind of a sacerdotal kind of thing. And that's kind of what we get into with these next few paragraphs is how to understand that. But the sacerdotalist view is almost like um, it doesn't really matter how much or whether there's even faith present, the grace is communicated. So within the Protestant view, faith has to be present in order to receive the grace. Within the Roman Catholic view, there's much more of a sort of, well, it doesn't matter whether you believe in uh, uranium or not, it's radioactive. <laughs> and, you know, you, you handle it and it affects you um, in, a, in a good, bad way, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, Mark. So the Reformed faith views the <clears throat> Old Testament covenant having sacraments and signs and so forth. Right. Do they ever have the same arguments? Are they Zwinglian in the Old Covenant? And yeah, that's an interesting thought. No, I, we, we do believe that uh, those, those sacrifices were efficacious, but because they were pointing to Christ. So... Um, Ultimately, it's Christ that was the referent. In other words, the what was signified, even though the people in their own minds weren't aware of that. They, they were thinking, okay, this is what we've been commanded to do. We believe that if we do these things, we will receive what's been promised. Um, but it's not as though, you know, there was a sacrificial system in the Old Testament that worked on its own rules, and then in the New Testament, there's a different reality. It's, it's you know... Again, this is an Augustinian way of describing it. You know, the, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So there's a continuity. Uh, God's pe only got one people. Um, there's only one Savior. We've, um, you know, there's only one mediator between God and man, and it's always been the case. So, so if, we were, if they were participating of the Passover, It'd be a realist view. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
Now, that means there have to be genuine faith present. And maybe the, the faith was very undeveloped because they didn't know what we know. But there was still a belief that God has uh, blessings for us if we do as we're told. And uh, this has uh, efficacy. It actually accomplishes something, meaning our, you know, the atonement, right? Other thoughts? I know I've gotten you all thinking. <laughs> and uh, now you'll all buy, you know, books on, you know, the sacramental affection. My thought because of this. Not, not, I'm not trying to be quiet, and then you bring things up. It's your fault. Back, yes, back, back to the Old Testament, yeah. efficacy of, depends on their, it's just the faith and the presence of the Spirit. I think that's part of what's here. Um, and as, as it relates to now, and we have supper, this is probably a, a, a Lord's Supper question, so we, I can wait, but in terms of uh, candidates for the supper meal you know it seems like the old testament saints would have been candidates for the supper you know because they did actually take it by the paschal by the virtue of the paschal lamb and yet their their understanding of it was less than ours i guess what i'm saying is there could be a, a very small amount of understanding is going obviously yeah. to the pedo community right. question there could be a very little maybe not in my estimation at all because of understanding what this is not requiring them to have you know some kind of uh, you know, theological foundation to say okay now you can take the supper yeah i think um that's a whole can of worms you just opened for a second <laughs> <laughs> no, that, let's, let's talk about that a little later, though. But I, I, I think that, so if we understand, and this is, the Christian, this is the Christian position, really, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, uh, that everything in the law, in some sense, is referring to him, including Passover, which, again, is very specifically connected to the Lord's Supper, right? That's when it was instituted, right? Uh, and the other feasts as well. I'm going to be talking about this. So there are three pilgrim, uh, pilgrimages that I know every man was supposed to uh, conduct every, every year. There was Passover, there was weeks, and there was booths. So you say, okay, how does, you know, we, we, we get how Christ fulfills the Passover. Christ is the Passover lamb. Uh, he gives his life. His blood is spilt. The angel of death passes over us as well, right? So this deliverance from death is something that is foreshadowed in the Passover. How are weeks and booths uh, fulfilled in Christ? Well, when was Pentecost? These are all feasts that correspond to the harvests. The first harvest is Pentecost. That's the feast of the first fruits. So it's the first harvest, and what do we see at Pentecost? The first harvest. 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's the first harvest. What's the last harvest? The end of the world. So again, Christ in faith, we're looking to that, but that's the final harvest. Booth course, booths is the, end, the last harvest of the year. It's the final harvest. 
and the Feast of Booths corresponds to the final judgment. Guess what the, the crop is? Us. <laughs> We're being brought in, right? Bringing in the sheaves. Bring in, right? We are the sheaves, right? The angels are bringing us in. That's the, so the first harvest gets the harvest season going. So we're between the harvests, the first harvest and the final harvest. There's still harvesting going on. Harvesting is the proclamation of the gospel, faith, you know, all, you know the, everything in between those times. Casting the seed, the word. So Christ fulfills the feasts. So we don't observe the feasts anymore. I was just in a conversation with a with a fellow this week about um, Torah-observant uh, believers. Are you familiar with the Torah-observant Christian movement? Where they're trying to bring back sort of the observance of the of all sorts of things. And, you know, it gets, you, you know, you say, are, are, you, are you by doing this implying that Christ doesn't fulfill the law? Oh, no, no, no. But what they, what they demonstrate is that they don't understand how Christ is related to the law. Because they think that, you know, these things that are still need to be observed because, you know, we're supposed to, you know, be subject to God's law. But there are laws that are now fulfilled. We don't make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you know, three times a year. That's <laughs> right. Right. Christ is uh, the fulfillment of the law. So... <clears throat> this, is, this is one reason why it's really important to know, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> you know things like the Westminster Confession of Faith, because if it's just you and your Bible alone in the woods, you can come up with all kinds of stuff. Okay, Any, anything else? Yeah, yeah. I was what you were just saying about making sure to observe, that particular group, making sure that they observe things and how they might not understand God's or Jesus' relation to the law. Um, how you explain within that context um, our cultural, well, our particular church and maybe denomination doesn't emphasize it a lot, but some denominations emphasizing uh, acknowledgement and uh, looking at the church calendar and observing particular practices um, what would be a good way to argue to a young person why that's valid and why it might be invalid yeah there, there are two basic positions there's uh, you know one position which um, is intending to reform the church and to uh, sort of uh, wean it off of certain traditions that don't have a scriptural basis. And this is, you know, the, the sort of the term for this is the regulative principle. Um, the, to be fair to the other side, uh, the, you know, the, their position is the sanctification of time. So what they're saying is that, um, you know, there are still cycles in the calendar. You know, we, we have a year. <laughs> and that... Um, these um, events in the Christian, you know, sort of the, the gospel, you know, the, the, uh, when we think about, you know, the Apostles' Creed, you know, they do correspond to things that happened in the past. There were times where these things happened. So Easter, for example, um, would, you know, be Resurrection Sunday. And we use the Jewish calendar to identify that. That's why it moves around, because it's a lunar calendar. Uh, and so Easter 
uh, is a way to think about sort of the cycle of the year within a Christian framework and sanctify it and say, okay, this is the same thing with Christmas. We, you know, there actually, it's not, a, it wasn't because of there was some pagan festival. It actually, there, in the early church, they calculated that this was the, 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 the date. Um, it had to do with a whole way of understanding uh, the Jewish beliefs about when prophets were born. It was, um, anyway, it's a long story. <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't arbitrary, and it wasn't just taking the, the winter solstice and, and using that and Christianizing it. But uh, that's the argument for that. Now, of course, you can just kind of fill it out because everybody has their favorite saint and that kind of thing. But in terms of the most sort of uh, basic framework, that's the idea. And so Lent would be an example of 40 days of preparation, right, before Easter. Uh, again, calling, recalling certain scriptural uh, practices and ways of thinking. But, you know, this is not a, uh, a thing that's been resolved. And even within um, the confession, this isn't addressed because there were people who were on different opinions, had different opinions about that. Other thoughts? Anyway, this is like, you know, you've been wanting to know. <laughs> you know, answers the questions you've been begging to ask. <laughs> I'll, just make, I'll just make a comment. So from my deep evangelical, eclectical background of different churches then coming to the Reform, one thing that's very interesting that in my observation is that in my elevator pitch, basically uh, Reformers, don't really fast, and evangelicals, the serious ones, they do. And it's oh, sort of like this, it's kind of like this. Actually, that's not true, but go ahead. <laughs> when you, when you, from an outside observance. Okay. Right, so what typically seems to happen is that uh, the, the generalization is uh, a reformer, it's like, well, I don't know how I have to do those things that some of these evangelicals would. Well, let's, let's, let's make, cause, so we're thinking a little anachronistically here. The, what we refer to as evangelicalism is like a, a 19th and 20th century phenomenon. So, so the reformed, but, but it, it, it is, that's, you know, what we call evangelicalism is a 19th and 20th century thing. Before that, um, you have, you know, if we're talking about the reformers, we, we need to kind of be clear about what we mean. There is uh, the magisterial reformers, which were the uh, first theologians of the Reformation, people like Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, etc., who um, were very knowledgeable and conversant with their Catholic adversaries. They, they were talking in terms and with, to each other in ways that they mutually understood. Um, yeah, but today uh, there have been people, I don't think that the Reformed have, have, have ever said you shouldn't fast. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an implication. So for instance, in the evangelical world, read your Bible and pray every day. The implication is, if I don't do this, I'm actually in danger of going to hell, but that will never be preached from the pulpit, never stated from an elder, but everybody knows it's true. That's the implication. Yeah, and then well, when you go over to the Reform, it's almost the opposite. Yeah. And it's implication, but never stated from the pulpit. 
Yeah. Well, I'll state it. <laughs> but, but you know, there's, um, there's a difference between theology and folk theology. I don't know if you've ever come, ever heard this referred to. So, for example, you know, most people, when they think about Catholicism, think about their Aunt Susie and her, you know, Mary, statue of Mary in the, in, in, you know, you know, in the backyard, you know, in the rosary, and 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 they would say, you know, she's an authority on Catholicism. Actually, she's not. <laughs> she's not actually uh, a good source of information. You know, what she's got is some understandings. I pray to Saint Joseph or whatever, but if you, you actually kind of read the, the, the people who, uh, you know, Roman Catholics state, these are our representative theologians, you'll say, no, that's not actually how it works. And so this was a lot of fun. You know, when I was teaching philosophy, I taught lots of people from different backgrounds. And I was always correcting Catholics on their theology. It was a lot of fun. And, no, that's not actually what your church believes. <laughs> that kind of thing. Because folks, you know, but the same thing's true for, for every denomination. It's not as though we can, like, oh, those silly Catholics. No, there are Reformed people who are kind of goofy, and there are evangelicals who are kind of goofy. You know? And if you uh, do the, the work of actually figuring out, okay, you know, so thinking about evangelicalism, it's you know, 3,000 miles wide and one inch deep. You know, it's just, it's, it's not a very uh, cohesive thing uh, and deep thing, and there, but there are different sort of branches and each of them have deep roots. You know, you can think about it that way. So it depends on which evangelicals you're talking about, how faithful they are to their particular theological tradition. Um, but in terms of what sort of is the, the ethos, sort of the popular understanding, you're right. I mean, that's often what, the way people think. So like my mother-in-law, I love her. Uh, she's uh, Wesleyan, she doesn't know what that means. Um, and she's got lots of strange notions that have nothing to do with her theological, you know, the theological position of her church. And that's folk. Yeah, she's got folk understandings. And, you know, she's 90 years old. I'm not going to, like, torment her. <laughs> she loves Jesus, and I think it's great. <laughs> Go for it, you know. It's not actually the way it works, but, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, but she knows enough. She's like, you know, she knows enough to, to know that I love Jesus. Jesus died for me, rose from the dead. Great. You know, I'm not going to try to make her a Calvinist on her deathbed or something. Like, that's going to make a difference in terms of her eternal destiny. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Occasionally, I'll correct her on a matter. I say, no, it doesn't quite work that way, Mom. <laughs> that kind of thing. But when we talk about what do, what do Christians have in common, there's actually a vast amount of stuff that Christians have in common from the various theological traditions. And those are the things that make us Christians, in other words, even though we disagree on particular things. So we can disagree with our Lutheran brothers or our Baptist brothers or even our Catholic you know, folks, uh, friends, about what's going on in the sacrament and still uh, trust that God is going to save that person. You get my... Get my my drift. Now, there are some folks who don't think that way. Some folks who think, unless you're part of my particular communion, you're doomed. So I had a fascinating kind of thing. So I've got lots of friends in, in all these. I'm an editor for uh, a, a journal called Touchstone, and there are, like, you know, there's the editorial board, uh, there's the senior editors, there are like 12 of us, and um, there are like four uh, Eastern Orthodox guys, six Roman Catholic guys, and the rest of us are 
you know, Protestants. And it's really a lot of very direct uh, talking behind the scenes to each other about these things. Um, but, um, you know, within, within say, Catholicism, um, there was this uh, piece that uh, Carl Truman wrote for First Things. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Carl Truman, but he's a Reformed theologian of some, of some note. And um, it was essentially, a, a, he was commiserating uh, a, about uh, the ignorance of some Protestants when it came to uh, the doctrine of God. And so, pretty important, pretty important one. Uh, a, a set of doctrines that we as Protestants and, and Catholics share in common. Okay. So I, I go into the comments section on this article, and I can see them because I'm a subscriber to the journal. That it's, and all of the Catholics are just saying, "When is this guy going to finally get to, you know, get to Rome?" <laughs> that kind of thing. Now I know Carl. He's never going to convert. <laughs> you know, he's, he's never going to cross the Tiber. He's got plenty of reasons why. Um, but it's, 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 it depends on which circle you're in. You know, the people, why does this person um, fail to recognize that the only true church is the Roman Catholic Church or something like that? Which is what Trent says. Yeah. Yeah. So these, these critics of Carl can point to that. <laughs> The problem of evangelicalism was was suggested by Hilaire Belloc in his view of the unity of the church and the Protestant movement would become before his time. I don't. I think this was before evangelical. It was early 20th century with Hilaire Belloc. Well, then he was already seeing it yeah. and saying, "See, aha, this is what you produce." Luther and yeah, well, that's not an unusual argument. It's been revived by a guy named Boyd here recently. The Unintended Reformation, I think, is the book he wrote. But anyway, it's, it's an old argument. Um, I don't think it, it follows. Hilary Belloc is, is fun. He was a friend of G.K. Chesterton. He wrote a book about, his, it's a collection of children's stories where all the children die uh, because of their disobedience. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> You know, and, but if you can, if you look up Hillary Belloc and you look for his children's stories, you know, it's like there's this one about a girl who keeps slamming doors and she has this unfortunate event that happens. It's kind of like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Every, every kid gets what they had coming to them. <laughs> Funny rhymes too. But uh, anyway, we've gone away, way away from this. <laughs> Uh, let me bring us back. Uh, we've got about another 10, 15 minutes to go here. So let's, let's go on to the next um, paragraph because it, it's, this is important. It elaborates on this, and I don't think we're going to get through this uh, particular paragraph. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Okay, this is a subtle dig at the transubstantiationist view, the sacerdotalist view. Uh, neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. This is actually referring to an early heresy in the church. I'll talk about it in a minute. But upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with the precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. So every, every clause is meaningful here. Every, you know, I, I imagine there was like, extensive debate over every single word. <laughs> yeah. 
we got to make sure we get the word worthy in there, you know, that kind of thing. So let me, let me take this a step back. I think that first clause re relating to conferred by any power in them, if you have an understanding of what I was getting at with sacerdotalism and with transubstantiation, you, you see what they're critiquing there. But the next line uh, is, is important for different reasons. Uh, and it's not, they're not going after, this, after Zwingli or anything. Uh, what, they're, what they're addressing is the problem I think it's Montanism. There's so many heresies, it's hard to keep them straight. But what happened, I think it was during the, the persecution of Diocletian, I think that's right, um, there were priests who handed over the scriptures to be burned. Okay? So imagine that was the guy who baptized you, or married you, or buried your grandparents, or whatever. That was the guy. And you're like, does that make my, my baptism invalid? Does that make my marriage invalid? The fact that this, this person betrayed the faith. So this was a big debate. Um, and it was resolved in the way that we see here. It's not the piety, uh, in other words, the virtue or the, even the obedience of the man who has administered the sacrament. Um, it's based on the work of the Spirit, the words of institution, the promise you know, implied in the, in the words of institution, so forth. So you don't have to be rebaptized because your priest handed over the scriptures to be burned. It was a valid baptism because it was done in the right way in the church. See how that works. So that's what it's getting at. And it still happens today, you know, like let's say you have a pastor who uh, apostatizes. And like you've been listening to him preach for 30 years. Does that mean everything he ever said was worthless? No. It's because it's not his words, it's not his work. There's a spirit at work, there's God's scriptures, you know, that have been proclaimed and expounded on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which, which epistle is it that, that Paul talks about that where some are using um, oh, yeah. as yeah, an opportunity? Right, for, yeah. Is it, is it Philippians? Uh, but any, anyway, yeah, he's talking about here I am in prison. Yeah. You know, there are people out there stirring up trouble. You know, uh, they're preaching Christ in order to make it rough for me. Now you're like, how would that work? Well, think about it this way. So let's say you're uh, in prison for promoting, I don't know, uh, free elections. And, you know, they're trying to figure out just how much, how much trouble have you stirred up for the authorities. And there are a bunch of people who just hate your guts and they're out there, you know, repeating everything you said to try to stir up the crowds to kind of create a situation in which the authorities say, we got we to gotta send a message, we got to execute this guy. That's the situation Paul found himself in. And then Paul says, hey, they're the proclaiming Christ. <laughs> you know, it's false motives. They're not actually trying to convert anybody. They're just trying to get me. But at least Christ has preached. That's the, that's the reasoning. We need free elections. <laughs> that was my illustration, but you know, that would be a good thing, particularly if you're into democracy. <laughs> How does that connect with um, the concept of the difference between Roman Catholic baptism and Protestant baptism? It may not depend on the piety of the person performing the baptism, but 
if you look at a Roman Catholic baptism, some would say that that's not even done right in the first place, so it's not even valid. So I guess it would mean in terms of how it was not done correctly. Do you have a particular uh, thing in mind? So, you know, basically water and Trinitarian uh, declaration is uh, understood as being the correct way. So if water is used... Uh, now, so, for example, the Baptist would say, no, you have to full immersion. Um, now, here's the fun thing. What about the Orthodox? They do full immersion with babies three times. Have you ever seen them? It's a, it's, it's a lot of fun. Particularly the, particularly the Russian Orthodox Church, because it's very masculine. And you see these, these women are like, ah! And like, <laughs> Father, Son, Spirit! And hands the baby back to the mother. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> Anyway, we don't do that in our church. <laughs> but just look it up. You, see, you can see just dozens of them on uh, YouTube. And the astonished statements in the comments section. I can't believe. <laughs> but in the Roman Catholic baptism, if they do it with the triune God with water, but then they also invoke by the power of Mary. And oh, well, then, yeah. And they add that on at the end. Does it wash away the Trinitarian aspect of it? Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't thought about it. Um, the answer is in, in Canon Law Section 480, if you're curious, because there is a concordance between the Reformed and the Catholic Church. Signed it in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, I remember hearing. Yeah. So, the, 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 as I understand the, the, the law, the, the act is considered to be complete at the time that it, the, the water is applied. You need to like really read the details, and so yeah. everything else is considered. Uh, nice to have in a contractual sense it's surplusage. Gotcha. So so in other words the reform position is the essential thing occurred. Right. Once I sign the document, like for example I'm buying a car, I can yeah. say hey, you give me a keys, that's not when the contract happens. It happened when I signed. Gotcha. It, it should be noted that um, I was told to be quiet, but <laughs> <laughs> that neither Calvin or Luther uh, rejected the baptism of the Roman Catholic in their time. Yeah. And that no. was an Anabaptist movement that rejected the baptism, I think. Yeah. And, I, and another thing to, to note, too, is that the veneration of Mary became more and more of a, phena a thing in the 19th century. So um, this is kind of the, the thing that is also interesting to note, is that there are a number of ways that the Orthodox Church are on the same page as we are in our criticisms of Rome. And that's one of them. Um, so the Orthodox, you know, are on the same page with us with purgatory, with uh, the status of the Pope, um, and Mary. Yep. What, what about a child's baptism in the Catholic Church uh, be valid? Well, that's what we were just talking about. Yeah. So, so if if a person's been baptized, the question is, is you know. Do we have to rebaptize a person? Now, in Baptist circles, yes. They would rebaptize our babies. So, so um, you could say that you know, we have the most inclusive <laughs> you know, to, to sort of disposition. Uh, now, within this, because, and, I, and the reason I haven't answered your question directly, Jennifer, is not because I'm trying to fudge, but there's disagreements. Uh, even at even amongst Presbyterian elders about whether or not to receive 
Roman Catholic baptism. Yeah. I read a book on uh, infant baptism years ago. Actually, my wife and I did. And in that book, I never knew this. Like you said, the Baptists wouldn't accept another Baptist baptism. They would, <laughs> they would baptize the person again, say that church has, has you know it has some shortcomings, so you need to have them. And it would go on. Sometimes you'd be baptized three times oh, yeah, yeah. from three different churches because you left one church to go to another church. And I just thought that was kind of crazy, and I never really thought about it till, till yeah now. I guess uh, yeah I guess call it baptism inflation or something like that. <laughs> anyway uh, yeah David. interesting thing on that on baptism I didn't actually think about baptism the way the reformers did till I obviously came here but when we got baptized we got baptized so we our mindset was wrongly I believe we would get baptized so we could show everyone and God that we were now dedicated to him yeah. and that's why sometimes we get baptized twice because now we really need it. <laughs> yeah because yeah it's 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 what is it the baptism referring to which gets us back to the sign and the things signified so if the if the thing signified is the saving work of Christ it's pointing to Christ and his his saving work not my faith now the fact that you are bringing yourself to be baptized is a demonstration that there's something going on in you. Hopefully, it's faith. Um, but again, we can't even really be sure. You know, um, we can make some judgments based on behavior, but um, we're in for some surprises on the last day. We're told. Yep, Mark. Just to point out that <laughs> what's here, what we've just read in terms of by the spirit and the word of institution yeah. is embedded within our book of church order and right. explaining exactly how a baptism and the Lord's Supper is to be right. taken so that that concern does not exist. Yeah, and of course, too, there's also uh, the catechism that accompanies this, um, which is intended to help us kind of work through it as we're thinking about these particular things. Um, I was going to say something I wanted to say sort of as a, as a way to, f to put a bow on things. <laughs> I guess um, the, well, I just can't remember it. It'll come to me in the week and I'll send out an email. <laughs> anyway, we should probably, yeah, Christopher. Kind of extending that question about what baptisms we would consider to be valid. Are there any, to your knowledge, any fringe groups or even cults that practice a Trinitarian baptism that the Reformed would consider to be legitimate? Wow. I guess it would depend on what you mean by uh, cultish or whatever. So, Jehovah's Witness or yeah, whatever. Well, I'm not familiar with their practices, but. Yeah, uh, I, I don't believe that they do. But they're not Trinitarian. Yeah. That's true. Mormons. Yeah, Mormons. Um, yeah, Mark. <clears throat> I'm just thinking that in the history of Westminster, I believe that it also says that it'd be performed by an ordained yeah. minister of the gospel. Right. That there's probably more rebaptisms that have been done because they weren't yeah. done by an ordained minister of the gospel. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a good point. Um, we're going to need to wrap things up. We're kind of past time. Um, just along that line, uh, sometimes within certain circles, you have so much sort of um, loosey-goosiness. Have you ever seen the film The Apostle with Robert Duvall? He baptizes himself. 
throws himself into the river. <laughs> I baptize you in the name. <laughs> so he baptizes himself. But I think another thing to, to kind of, uh, it's worth considering, just, be, just so you know, sort of a thing. The, you know, the Reformed tradition is in a very interesting spot in terms of American Christianity. So within American Christianity, it's like every other uh, Christian group can relate to us, even though they don't relate to each other very well. So like, for example, um, I'm able to interact with Lutherans and with Roman Catholics and with Pentecostals and with Baptists, but you very seldom ever see a Baptist having anything to do with a Lutheran. If you get, you get my, my drift. We're in this, this is one of the reasons why the Reformed tradition, particularly the Presbyterians, have had such a remarkably outsized influence on our nation. Um, it's one of the reasons. It's just because we're in this really interesting spot where it seems like every other branch of the, of the Christian church can relate to us because we're, we're sacramental enough to pass muster with some people, but we're, more, we're evangelistic enough to pass muster with others. You get, you get my drift? It's sort of like, depends on which group we're in at the moment. Oh, yeah, well, it's it's a uh, it's a interesting phenomenon. Anyway, well, let's let's pray. Lord, uh, we know we've just touched the surface of things, and there are many things that we could have uh, gotten into with this. Uh, it's a very rich subject, and we always feel inadequate for a range of reasons when we come to think about these matters. We're glad, the Lord, that uh, the efficacy of these sacraments are not entirely up to our understanding. It's, our understanding is important, but uh, it's not as though uh, a poor understanding or a, an uh, un, incomplete understanding prevents us from uh, enjoying the benefits of the sacraments, so we're glad for that. We do pray, Lord, that you'll help us to understand these things better, but in such a way so as to glorify you, not to puff ourselves up, nor to... Uh, create division in the church. In Christ's name, amen.